All right. This is Finchley Place. I'm Crispy Chicken, and I'm here with... Suspended Reason. And today we're looking at the very first scene of The Wire, uh, the critically acclaimed TV show. Boy's name is what? Snot. You call the guy Snot? Snot Boogie. Yeah. Snot Boogie. You like the name? What? Snot Boogie. This kid whose mama went to the trouble of christening Omar Isaiah Betts. You know, he forgets his jacket. So his nose starts running and. Some asshole, instead of giving him a Kleenex, he calls him snot. <laughs> so he's snot forever. Doesn't seem fair. Life just be that way, I guess. So, who shot snot? I ain't going to no court. Motherfucker ain't had to put no cap in him, no. Definitely not. He could have just whipped his ass like we always whip his ass. I agree with you. He gonna kill Snot. Snot been doing the same shit since I don't know how long. Kill a man over some bullshit. I'm saying. And every Friday night, we're in the alley behind the cut ring, we rolling bones, you know? I mean, all the boys from around the way, and we roll to late. Alley crap game, right? Like every time. He's not. It fade a few shooters. Play it out to the pots deep. Snatch and run. What, every time? Couldn't help himself. Let me understand you. Every Friday night, you and your boys will shoot crap, right? And every Friday night, your pal Snot Boogie. He'd wait till there was cash on the ground, then you'd grab the money and run away? You let him do that? Man, we'll catch him and beat his ass, but ain't nobody never go past that. I gotta ask you, if every time Snot Boogie would grab the money and run away, why'd you even let him in the game? What? With Snot Boogie always stole the money, why'd you let him play? Got This America, man. I think I'll start with Snot's a name. Because, obviously, McNulty, the detective, um cares about this and thinks thinks right like what's his name snot who wants to be called snot after you know mucus that comes out of your nose um and so he gets into it and he kind of tells this little story about it right which i'll just read off here which is he forgets his jacket so his nose starts running and some asshole instead of giving him a kleenex he calls him snot and you know that's kind of funny because we feel Right, like McNulty says it's unfair. And we feel it's unfair because we feel it's unrepresentative. And we feel like somehow, you know, nicknames should put you in a good light or at least be bland enough that you can kind of ignore them. But McNulty kind of assumes that in one situation, it became kind of convenient to tease, right? And we all tease back and forth, but that that convenience led to a nickname that stuck. 
And kind of the assumption, it seems to me, that's implied here is that, well, someone called him snot, and then other people thought it was funny. And the next time you see him, you call him snot because it's still funny. And every time it gets reinforced until what was just a little convenient teasing, a little name that made sense at the time and allowed for a certain social play becomes a label. But I think what's really interesting here is that like, yeah, I've seen that before, you know, this kind of thing of uh, unfortunate circumstance leading to something becoming routine. But what's interesting is McNulty doesn't know that this happened, right? It's not actually the truth. In it. it's, it, we have no idea why he's actually right. called Snot. Snot, snot Snot's nose could have been running every single day. He could have, you know, had a perpetually uh, soggy upper lip. Or it could be because, you know, he misheard something and called it Snot Boogie. And then everyone else was like, what? What, right, what the right. fuck are you talking about? Right? It could be anything. But we kind of are soothed into assuming that it might be the case because basically uh, the witness, which we don't know the name of, um, doesn't say no. And we kind of assume mm. that this would have goaded him into saying something. And so it's this perfect example of creating kind of attention towards the real or towards what someone perceives as the real by creating a narrative and assuming that if it's close enough, it'll resonate and it'll slide past yeah. and the conversation will go forward. And if it's not, you expect pushback and that'll give you information. And I think what's really interesting is what the witness, you know, replies to that it doesn't seem fair is, you know, life just be like that. And that is using kind of an over narrative to justify a sub narrative or like a certain part of a sub narrative that, you know, you can feel as unfair as like a little blip. But that he's saying, well, you expect these kind of ups and downs in life, right? And by saying something that is, you know, a mutually assumed narrative and, and putting this sub-narrative um, into this mutually assumed narrative, it normalizes it and releases the tension. Hmm. That's interesting. So here then, um, I mean, it seems like kind of what you're saying, there's a little bit of in the very opening line... Boy's name is what? Snot. You call the guy right. Snot? Right, so, Snot I mean, here I guess, it sounds like, here McNulty's basically using that same kind of tactic that he's using later, where he tells this story, um, and he's getting information out of it, right? He says, your boy, he presents information, and then if it's not contradicted, he can almost essentially assume that it's true. And I mean, obviously, a, a kind of cunning player um, won't correct um, him, but I think there's a safe assumption here that this witness is, um, you know, a relatively naive player. Um, not totally naive. You know, there's that line about not going to court, which I think is a nice line, too, because it's not saying I'm not going to snitch. It's not saying I'm not going to tell you who did it. It's saying I ain't going to no court. Um, there's a very specific, uh, you know, kind of delineation of what what he will or won't do and how things are going to go down. Um and he's saying uh, less than he has to in some sense. Um, and then McNulty just lets it sit. There's that long, long pause that kind of follows it, um, which uh, the witness then, you know, feels some inclination to speak, whether it's to fill the silence because the silence is uncomfortable or because there's kind of this expectation of reciprocity in conversations. But it is interesting the way that kind of like you're saying, I mean, 
there are these these norms in in a conversation that are being exploited or or played out. Yeah. In our pre-conversation, I was saying, you know, this is hard to explain game theoretically. And you were saying, well, it's not hard to explain game theoretically. It's hard to explain with a really simplistic game theory narrative like Prisoner's Dilemma or something. And I think this really shows it, which is it's easy to think that the witness's um, incentive is purely not to get tied up in the police issues. But I don't think that's the case. And I think he's clearly uh, conflicted because he really does hate that this happened. It's not. And he wants something to be done. And he knows the police are in a much better position to actually move muscle there. And then he won't be kind of, you know, the person who did it either. Um, But he also doesn't want to get trapped into the world of, you know, being a police informant, being a witness. It's a, you know, it's a cost to him because of his community standards, but it's a cost of him in time and expectations of what's going to happen next time and all of these other things. So I think, you know, he is playing this line, not purely just because he is, you know, naive. And as you mentioned, he's not, but because he really does have two conflicting interests. And I think he's actually still in the process of figuring out a, what he can get and b what he wants to get out of it, given kind of like, the social infrastructure and the social landscape that's that's placed here, which he doesn't fully understand necessarily yet. Yeah. Hmm. In our our pre-conversation, you talked a little bit about um, this kind of nice Chuck Klosterman quote um, about nicknames. And uh, I mean, essentially they talk about, you know, this one nickname, uh, Kleptosaur, which I guess comes about because the guy uh, in third grade had tried to shoplift the plastic dinosaur. And, you know, you wonder about why these kinds of one-off uh, situations, these these one-off nicknames um, stick. Why, you know, it would be a reasonable story for McNulty to tell about, um, you know, this one time this kid, Omar Isaiah Betts, forgets his jacket, you know, starts running, some asshole calls him snot and it catches on and he's snot forever. Um, you know, you're fond of, I think, chalking up a lot of communication to kind of coordination games and people trying to coordinate around things. And this to me, I think is a good example of that kind of situation where there's some way to kind of create solidarity. So the people who were with Ted in third grade, um, when he tried shoplifting it or were his friends in third grade have some kind of special relationship to him and they can essentially coordinate around that special relationship and that history together through this name. And it sticks in part because either you had to have been there or maybe some people kind of found out the next day at school and maybe they didn't quite feel as comfortable in third grade using the nickname or they couldn't handle it authoritatively. But as the years go by, they become more of the in-group and they can actually, they have more kind of authority or claim or uh, can express more solidarity by uh, invoking that nickname Kleptosaur. And there's this way of kind of creating and reinforcing um, uh, this this relationship, um, this alliance almost. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's true. Though I think it was probably quicker than that for this example from Downtown Owl. And I, and I think, though, it actually speaks to your point, which is, you know, Chuck Klosterman is making this point basically about small town culture as he knows it. And I think small town culture tends to have this interesting aspect of there are often a few tight little cliques, but there is a much bigger sense that everyone in the town is kind of an in-group. 
And like, you know, you see this if someone from out of town comes, which is like, they're not treated the same way in any capacity. And in some ways they're treated better, in some ways they're treated worse. And that actually really depends on like what small town, but it's different. And obviously like when you're in, you know, Manhattan, you don't really know who's from Manhattan. Uh, and you definitely don't know right. who's from Manhattan versus Brooklyn, except in very obvious cases. Um, mm-hmm. You can tell, you know, at the people staring at how tall the buildings are, but that's actually an extreme example. There are lots of people who are just visiting who you just have no idea. And so I think right. what's going on with, you know, Kleptosaur is very quickly it percolates to the in-group because it's a way of pegging this guy down when they need to. And I think that, you know, having that button um, is uh, is useful. And unlike in other situations, there's not enough churn that someone can just leave and not deal with you, unlike in Manhattan, right? Like, unlike when there's enough people. And so, like, mm-hmm. people kind of keep track of these, like, ways they can kind of push you down when they need to in order to, you know, squeeze you into position. Oh, really? So you see the nickname as almost manipulative or controlling I or, but I mean... I don't hmm. think that... I don't think that it's necessarily bad, though. Like, I don't think that that it doesn't make me sad. You know, here's an example. As far as I can tell, and, and this is like, obviously, you know, all of us has to be informed by our very specific cultures and subcultures. But m- the people I know who keep the most track of other people's, um, you know, the ways they can kind of push people down in little ways are couples. You're constantly finding mm. little ways to tease, you know, your your partner about this and that. And you're really keeping track of these patterns of, honestly, like, you know, it doesn't sound nice, but ways that they fail. Um, and of course, you're more careful if it's something that they really care about. But I don't think the kleptosaurus thing is something that this dude really cared about, right? I think it's something that mm. we can kind of, you know, because of the background principles, we can kind of claim is objectively bad, but no one really cares that much. And so I think because of that, it becomes exactly one of these little tools. But I think those tools are often much more used by people who you're close to emotionally um, than not. And in some ways, that's Mm -hmm. a sign of trust because you trust them not to manipulate into a position that you'd feel really bad in. I see. So it's almost like publicly flaunting leverage or something. Um, and, exactly. and then trusting them not to use it. So here then, it's not a coincidence that the names are kleptosaur and snot or that the incidents are thieving and um, or theft and, and a runny nose. The, here, the, the only nicknames that could stick are ones that are rather negative. Um, do you think that's broadly true? Do you think, yeah. I mean- I think it's- Yeah. Yes, I, I think it's very difficult to get a nickname that is just totally positive. Doesn't it sound a little bit like ridiculous or worshiping if right. I, you know, you know, uh, you know, you can call someone muscle, but you'd almost be saying right. it like meathead because like, yeah, maybe right. it's cool that they have muscle, but you, you eventually kind of stick onto the bad part. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Hmm. I think there's a reason for that. I think it's because anyone in any situation has a reason to say something positive about you. There's never uh, really a l- less benefit to getting leverage with you unless you're trying to signal to someone else and that's this entire complicating situation. But in general, you know, being positive can be for any reason. But being negative shows that either you have an intention to fuck someone up or you're close enough to have the trust. And I think that's 
a much finer line to walk. And therefore, it has, it's just much more useful because it can give more information in terms of communication. Do you think that there are relevant gender differences? Because obviously, there's a lot of talk about um, the different ways that female friendships are supportive, whereas male friendships typically kind of sublimate um, camaraderie into competition. And, and you know, the ideas of like yeah. ribbing, negging, um, that kind of stuff are much more male friendship culture. Totally. I mean, never having been a woman, uh, obviously, this is limited. But I was actually thinking about this yesterday. Um, you know, I really do think that there are differences um, in the men's spaces and women's spaces that I've had some exposure to both, you know, second and first hand. So like, uh, just something that I'll say is that like, up until maybe middle schoolish, I really mostly hung out with girls. It's like, I don't have any particular thesis on why this happened. I had a like pretty long hair for a boy. And so like, I don't know. And I was like, I had kind of like feminine facial features. I got mistaken for a girl relatively often. So like maybe it was just like whatever kind of normal things, like kind of normal uh, physical profiling. But I, I don't know. I don't really know why it happened. I'm not going to make any theses. But I spent a decent amount of time in girl spaces, though obviously there's an observer effect because I am a boy. But my impression is that like the whole supportive thing is a little bit overblown, not because it's not true. So like I think women in my experience have been way more likely to kind of have active interventions of like, oh, you're having trouble with that. Let me help you with that much more than in the men's spaces I've been in. But I would say there's really an equal component to making sure you're capable of laughing at yourself and that people who weren't capable of laughing at themselves were looked down upon, but looked down upon more in secret. It was more whispers in the background and not to people's faces. And I think because of that, often like nicknames, for instance, that I was aware of were rarely like bad, like in an obvious way, but often people would purposely twist meanings both ways. So there'd be something they would say in public about why that was the nickname and something they would say in private about why that was the nickname. I can't think of a good example (laughs) that like is easy to explain now, but there were definitely a few. And I guess actually that's one of the difficulties. A lot of these were in-group jokes. And they were almost maybe purposefully difficult to explain to others so that the bad side wasn't easily revealed as kind of this obvious, oh, of course, that's why it was there. There's a a fun scene in Generation Kill, which is also a David Simon, Ed Burns uh, production uh, about the Iraq war. And uh, one of the guys um, is riding along in a Humvee, on some engagement and he thinks he sees foreign combatants and he shoots at them and he's kind of been trigger happy the whole show. And it turns out that they're two kids, um, walking, you know, a camel or something or an ox. And, um, beautiful. He, the next episode, um, p- people are calling him, I think they're calling him Whopper Jr. And eventually, uh, the Rolling Stone reporter who's embedded with them, tries to figure out why are they calling this guy Whopper Jr. And I guess um, Baby Killer leads to BK, the initials, which, you know, Burger King, Whopper Jr. And so there's this chain, right, of, uh, and it's the same thing. I mean, it's just like the snot boogie or it's just like the kleptosaur. I mean, it's a, a one-time thing where this guy does one thing and for the rest of his life, like he's going to be Whopper Jr. now. Um, and in this case, you know, I mean, it's a funny thing because I think 
it's a tense nickname because on one hand, this thing will probably haunt him forever, what he did. And on the other hand, the fellow Marines are sort of showing some kind of acceptance or saying, right, that it's okay. Like if we can tease you about this thing, then it means it's not the end of the world um, that we, you know, we're going to accept you anyways. Um, so it's this interesting, interesting combination. Um, it's brutal. And to, to remind this guy about something that he, you know, obviously does and should feel terrible about. And at the same time, it's showing some solidarity. Yeah, that's, you know, that gets to something that I feel very strongly, which is, it's interesting that I guess when any, whenever there's like some kind of investigation of like what the culture was in a certain place or something like that, exactly like, you know, you might want to investigate the Marines. I, I find it almost impossible to believe any reports on it exactly because of this. Exactly because, mm-hmm. like, you could imagine someone writing a piece about how this is them, you know, taunting this person for his mistake, or this is them showing solidarity. I, you know, I think on the show, the way you're describing it, it's clearly kind of more of the solidarity thing. It's very easy to push it either way. And you could imagine situations, real human situations, where it goes either way. And it's funny, I, I noticed this a lot in um, in high school, right, where you would see people just, like, I feel like just beginning to kind of get a grasp on romance and they would you know have a crush on somebody and they would describe what they liked and it would like clearly describe so many people in the high school and then someone would be like oh but like isn't that like kind of like this person and they're like well not quite like that because of this thing and this thing and this thing um and and it really makes you feel how Mm -hmm. much you know our words are attempting to be selectors and signalers but they're not baseline descriptions of the actual process of cognition, right? And that just makes all of this idea of understanding what's going on fundamentally very difficult. What What do you mean by that exactly? So the idea that, so there's this idea that words are selectors. And then there's this idea that um, the scene could have gone either way. Can you connect those for me uh, again? Right. Maybe? What I mean here is, in the case of the high school, sorry, I should express this. I think people don't really know why they form a crush on somebody. And I think because mm-hmm. of that, their attempt to describe things is fundamentally very weak. And they kind of like are attempting to make this selection and they make this weird kind of amalgamation of properties that they think is a unique selector. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. it's not actually describing the computation that led to their crush. And they don't even uh-huh. really know how to do that. And I mean, yet it's a, they don't yeah. want to rely on something. They don't want to rely on something too random, even if it's unique, right? You could say, you know, uh, the ginger dude who happens to be five nine, right? Which is like that might be unique for the high school, but why on earth would that make you like somebody? And maybe it does, or maybe it right. doesn't. But it's you know, right. th- they could make a unique category, but they need to justify it within certain constraints, and often they don't have enough self understanding in order to make a unique selector that they can legibilize to other people in a meaningful way or even you know either to understand what why they like it in the first place i don't think that's possible or to even justify it in a fake way using the tools available i think both of those are kind of beyond people a lot of the times and it ends up with this kind of funny conversation where you see people not really understanding but justifying the other person because they see that they're not going to get real information out of it right so here you kind of have you have a little bit of the um, spirit letter problem where it just 
endlessly hard to to kind of capture the spirit or the kind of you know just even human desires or the kind of algorithm that people run internally you know if you had like a person who was trying to administer some kind of um moral system um they might have a good intuition about how they would you know navigate that in specific situations but actually coming up with the language or the rules that you know is incredibly hard so there's a bit of that and it also sounds like there's a bit of a problem where they can only model their own, like their algorithm to some extent of desiring or selection is a bit of a black box to them. And so they can only kind of approximate it with models that they've learned about why people desire. So, you know, if uh, if a certain characteristic or quality isn't something that they think um, human causes human beings to desire other human beings, then it doesn't really enter their model for why they would want or desire somebody. And finally, there's this like third kind of public justifiability, which seems tied into the model stuff, because if something is floating around in like the public models of why people like people, then it can be justified. So there's a connection, but you could also see a situation in which an individual was able to come up with a relatively unique motivation and yet couldn't actually publicly deploy it. Absolutely. And and I think there's this, this just issue on top. Fundamentally, a lot of the times the reasons for things being the way they are are history, but people often want a propositional solution that has to do with the current properties of people and objects about why they should work that way, right? Mm. Like the way the education system is now is because it developed out of the old one, but people want this story about how, you know, college is going to change the structure of the middle class, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. The point is that that's definitely not the reason why we have it today. It wasn't built yesterday in order to facilitate the exact purpose that it's executing right now. People really want explanations that are functional to the current moment. So let's, I think, I feel like we should get back to the scene and hammer down some other things. Um, McNulty is, you know, basically playing this game of, you know, when when he makes the approach to the witness, he says specifically, so your boy's name is what? And here, of course, he could have, uh, you know, not code switched. Um, he could have not tried to speak the language of the witness, but he does intentionally. And uh, and like you, you say, uh, there's something kind of pragmatic about this. It shows that he's kind of getting down to business, but also is, you know, doesn't need a stunt on the formalities. Um, maybe that he's not like other cops, quote unquote. So I think I agree with everything you just said. And I think there was this interesting bit on top. This isn't a real person. This is a fictional person who is made for our viewership. And the other thing that's going on here is that this is designed to make us feel like McNulty knows what's going on. And so it's kind of assumed that you and I, you know, watching The Wire, know what code switching between kind of different subcultures looks like, right? And like, you know, you very much see, you know, a very mundane example of this is seeing uh, parents talk to children in various different ways. And if they have children of different ages or of very different personalities, often they kind of have subdialects that they'll use to address different children. But in the going back to like, you know, being present in the story, I think what's interesting is that McNulty does kind of switch and try to talk the witness's language, but he doesn't overbear it. And that's the classic problem, right? That's the high school teacher who's trying to talk slang and totally screwing it up. Even if they get some of the things right, 
because they're just like dripping with the intensity of trying to speak this dialect. McNulty doesn't seem to change his voice that much in order to try to speak more like the witness because, you know, presumably the witness would be like, what the fuck is this shit? You're trying to copy me? Like, what, what, what are you doing? Instead, he's just injecting it in little ways. And I think there's a kind of key point there, which is when you do this kind of thing, you want to keep it under the surface as much as possible. And when things get explicit, it's very dangerous and it can kind of be called out much more easily. Yeah. I I also liked your point um, in our earlier conversation about how by still cutting to business, by still asking, you know, what the name of the victim is, he's not really he's not hiding his agenda um, and he's still plausibly playing within the the model, the witnesses model of how a cop acts or what a cop is up to. And if you you know, if you had McNulty walking up to him and saying, how's it going? Like, what's good with you? Like, uh, you know, how's how's your ma? Uh the the victim would immediately know <laughs> right like <laughs> uh, the victim immediately knows like the, the cop has an agenda like the victim isn't an idiot the vic or sorry the witness the witness knows here that that the cop has an agenda which is getting information out of him by not trying to obscure that i think mcnulty probably wins some points in honesty just for coming out straight this is maybe maybe more of a stereotype than anything that that i have real grounds to defend but it feels like um bureaucracies are maybe I should say that working class culture and street culture prides itself on an anti-pretentious attitude to language and communication. And basically, you know, it defines itself in opposition to uh, the kind of bureaucratic uh, speak and the bullshit of, uh, of bureaucracy and formal etiquette. And so by playing it straight by cutting to the chase, by being honest. I think you probably win points in these kinds of cultures. Agreed. And I think one of the reasons why you get a boosting effect here is because there's an assumption that McNulty wouldn't just hang out in this neighborhood. It's not his normal space. That when he comes here, he's coming to extract and purely to extract what he needs out of it. When that's the prior, you can't just completely reverse directions. So you have to just soften it to the extent that that would be believable. And knowing how much you can soften it and still be believable is kind of the key skill, rather than knowing any other stuff about what you should do and that you should be kind of honest and whatever. And I think almost everybody knows that. But get that sense of how much you can push things a little bit more in your favor and what that adds up to seems to be kind of the key skill that distinguishes people who have social charms and are you know able to charismatically get what they want from the people who can't. I mean, I think this plays nicely into some of the stuff we've talked about um, in terms of communication uh, being a, a form of kind of mutual manipulation, um, but also that people really don't like being manipulated. So if there's kind of a weak version of manipulation and a strong version, then the strong version looks like um, kind of explicit, uh, non-consensual, um, willing to kind of lie, fudge details, play behind the scenes, um, present a different picture of reality to your face, et cetera, et cetera. That's the kind of like strong manipulation that people are very wary of and very averse to. And if they get a, a whiff of it, I think they'll pretty much shut you down because they don't trust you, which I think is kind of what would happen, right? If McNulty came in with a bunch of bullshit about, you know, how are you doing? Uh, trying to make small talk, you know, asking him, you know, complimenting him on his jacket, uh, you know, stupid shit like that. And I feel like, I mean, so obviously McNulty wants something out of this interaction, which is to get the information 
and obviously most people want you know something out of pretty much every interaction even if you just define you know desiring something out of an interaction as you know kind of an acceptable bounds of what you're shooting for so even if it's just kind of making small talk at a party you definitely don't want to party foul and get you know punched out or evicted from the party um you know you have all these lower bounds of how the interaction could go that you're definitely steering away from and then you maybe have some kind of a uh, preferred you know targets of, you know, maybe it'd be great to uh, make a connection with this person and uh, and either learn something about the industry or get a contact number or to just kind of know this group of people a little bit better so that in the future I'm a little more socially ingratiated. Um, or maybe I'm just here to have a good time. And, and that's kind of something you can optimize for. Whatever it is, people have preferences, right? And they come into these things and they have agendas, even if they're, you know, kind of vague, loose agendas. And here McNulty has a very sharp agenda, which is that he wants information. And that agenda directly conflicts with a lot of the witness's best interests. Even though he might want some justice or revenge for his boy, the cost and the penalty is if he gives over information and is known on the street as a snitch are huge. And we see that play out a lot in The Wire, um, that dynamic. And so... It feels like a lot of understanding this whole approach by McNulty and why it works is that he's essentially trying as soft of a touch of manipulation as possible and in every way is trying to play it assuring and straight. When the guy says, I ain't going to no court, McNulty just doesn't say a word. He just sits there for like 15, 20 seconds and, and lets, lets the witness kind of talk and come to him. And, you know, it reminds me of how you treat cats, you know, you squat down and you put your hand out and you let it kind of slowly slink up to you and sniff your hand. And then, you know, almost a kind of trust, you're essentially putting the initiative in their court. Um, let's f- people feel a lot better about these things. I mean, I think it's what makes them not feel manipulated. And I think, I don't know a ton about, you know, the sa- world of sales and scams and cons other than through, uh, you know, movies, House of Games, Glengarry Ross, uh, David Mamet, Mamet, I don't know how you pronounce his name, but I feel like this is kind of how a lot of these scams work is that they make you think that you're actually rolling the ball, that you're the one who is taking the initiative and making things happen. And in fact, they're kind of very subtly setting things up so that you want to come to them. And that's how the manipulation works. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. And I think now, actually, because of this idea of like sharp agendas versus soft agendas would be a good time to I'll play that uh, little clip with the I ain't going to no court. And then it'll lead into this description of what's not does, which I feel like is actually a perfect playground for some soft agenda stuff. Who shot snot? I ain't going to no court. <laughs> Motherfucker ain't have to put no cap in him, no. Definitely not. He could have just whipped his ass like we always whip his ass. I agree with you. You're going to kill snot. Snot been doing the same shit since I don't know how long. Kill a man over some bullshit. I'm saying. And every Friday night, we're in the alley behind the cut rate, we rolling bones, you know? I mean, all the boys from around the way, and we roll to late. Alley crap game, right? Like every time, he snot, it fade a few shooters. Play it out to the pots deep. Snatch and run. Every time. So, you know, just to reiterate what you were saying, I think, you know, 
the it's really true that that's one of the biggest pauses right after I go to no court where McNulty just knows that there's no winning with anything he could say. But once the witness starts talking again, he's, you know, supportive and building him up in the, you know, easiest possible way, just kind of agreeing and, and making sure that that agreement doesn't go anywhere specific. So uh, definitely yeah. agree there. What's the incentive that gets the witness talking more about all of this stuff? And we could say, you know, he wants, you know, uh, something, someone to do something about not dying or whatever. But I think one of the things is he's summarizing it for himself, right? He's like, how the fuck yeah. did shit get here? Um, and I think that's an underappreciated um, incentive that people have to describe things to other people in a way where they get confirmation that that makes any sense in order to feel like they understand the situation and McNulty is right on there taking advantage of it because as soon as he's done, he's like every time and he's questioning whether this situation makes sense in order to extract information. He's not giving the witness the kind of confirmation he wants yet in order to get that last bit of information about how things ended up here. This is interesting. I mean, you know, I just uh, was reading, I think this morning and yesterday, uh, rereading The Tower by Hotel Concierge. And he actually, you know, he argues... One of the big questions of the essay is, you know, why don't people want to be happy? And then he kind of talks about things that people seem to care about more than being happy. He draws a line between, you know, Kahneman's um, remembering self and experiencing self, draws parallels between that and the kind of Freudian id ego superego uh, frame. But I think a lot of the what that essay is arguing is that people have this kind of desire to be understood, to represent themselves, and to somehow make their kind of local truths um, known broadly. Even though that isn't, I don't know, it doesn't feel totally intuitively true immediately, but it does feel like this kind of desire for one side of the story to be told is strong and a reason that a lot of people end up saying things they maybe shouldn't. And I do feel like uh, this is kind of a, a common police tactic, uh, if only in you know narrative retellings. But this idea of being able to share your side of the story and not let some kind of public representation that is false in some way be the one that floats. And also, I think how people get witnesses to testify. It's interesting to me. I mean, I've been reading um, Nightjack, which is this a blog by from 2008 by a UK police officer. It won the, the Orwell Prize and then was immediately shut down because the, uh, the Times, that's the, uh, the UK Times, basically docks the police officer. They hacked into his email, no joke, and um, and found out his identity, totally illegal stuff, outed him for the story. And then uh, I believe he was told he had to shut down the, the blogger, get fired. But for a while, it was considered basically the most accurate behind the scenes peak that you get instance into, you know, police institutional life. One of the kind of the techniques that he talks about in terms of in terms of witnesses there are very strong social norms and almost desires to play out these roles um, in conversations. 
by basically finding ground to talk about that isn't contested, you can keep the ball rolling in these conversations. Because unless it gets up to really something that they know is going to like show their hand, they'll just continue the conversation, make it politely. It's actually very, very rare that these witnesses will just sit quietly. And so McNulty kind of gets to say these, you know, has this conversation about snot and his name, and it doesn't seem fair. And they can have this kind of sideways conversation and the witness kind of slowly gives some information or walks towards meaningful information. Motherfucker ain't have to put no cap in him, though. I mean, he could have just whipped his ass like we always whip his ass. I mean, here he's basically already given away the details of how the murder has taken place. And in the next line, he starts talking about the motivations, you know, the, the craps theft um, that motivates it all. He's basically given away half the story and he's given this um, despite maybe in his mind or in the kind of the public narrative, the ostensible top layer narrative there. He isn't actually telling McNulty anything. He's just kind of processing his feelings or kind of, you know, talking about it obliquely, but it gives some plausible deniability at the top level of the conversation in order to actually disclose meaningful things. Uh, Maybe that kind of plays into your stuff about feeling conflicted and people having conflicting desires and that resulting in conflicting behavior. But it could also be seen as this kind of strategic plausible deniability thing. No, I think that's right. And I think that that strategy is meant to basically elicit the kind of relationships that we want, despite the fact that I myself, if I was taken in for questioning by the police, I would basically try to say nothing and ask for my lawyer. I'd be like, what's going on here, right? Um, I don't think that's a crazy standpoint by any means. It's difficult because you don't want to live in a world where you're stuck in a box with people you're trying your hardest not to talk to. It's just not something that people want in a very base way. And so I think by kind of inventing an excuse for why it doesn't have to be that way, even implicitly by being like, whatever, I'm just, I'm saying this to myself. I'm, I, I just, you know, I need to say something. You're, you're trying to break the tension in the current situation because that's just not a situation you ever wanted to be in. And if you can change the situation so you're not in that terrible situation, that's, uh, that's where you're at. So I, I agree that there really is this element of strategy. And I think this gets into, you know, what you've been writing about too, that like, strategy is an all Machiavellian. I think this is a kind of strategy that you'd have a lot of trouble getting people to explicitly say they were doing. But I think you can see it that people will maneuver conversations automatically into places where they're just more comfortable speaking. And that's not, you know, that's not thought out. It's just what people do because they've been trained to do that their entire lives in literally every conversation. Because if you'd rather be in one part of a conversation than another, then it, the only thing you do is to kind of subtly move your way into it. Um, hmm. Why should we take an example in fiction seriously? Um, yeah, that's probably the most important know. question. Okay. So let's, okay, let's get into it then. So, you know, if I'm putting my literary criticism or literary theory hat on, I say the reason that uh, The Witness and McNulty say the things they do is because they want the author wants to evoke certain things in the audience. They want to reinforce certain themes. There, are so you know, maybe uh, David Simon has an agenda in this kind of line about uh, this is America, and so by inserting it, you know, it, it's basically political commentary, and we shouldn't see this scene as anything but an excuse for that kind of uh, artistic agenda. 
Uh, so why why take the actual kind of micro transactions of the social interaction seriously? Yep. And I think no matter what, we should always be thinking about that because it's true. And there's just no way around it. Rather, this is something, you know, we talked about way back when, about this idea of exploring the world through resonance. There are things that when we read, we're like, man, that is exactly how it is. And there are things that when we read, we're like, what the fuck is this shit? The difference is important. It's information bearing. And so I think the point about literature is that if we see something in it, the interesting thing is, why do we see that? And I think that is basically us essentially creating artificial stimuli to produce a kind of effect in our normal social response, because we have social response to fictional situations, right? Like that's why we watch fiction. And so I think the interesting thing is basically studying the viewer. And if you are the viewer, often you have a lot of, you know, um, introspection ability into your own understanding of the situation. I don't think that we should view this as something that happened in Baltimore. I really have no idea what the streets of Baltimore were like in the early 2000s at all. I have, I have literally no clue. But I think the interesting thing is if you want to take the reverse stance and you only want to trust hard data, you're basically in the same problem as looking at fiction because that hard data was produced by someone. And maybe there are a few cases where there are really databases of data that have been confirmed by enough people that you can really believe that those are the facts. But you can't get that to extend to all the corners of human behavior that we care about. So the reality is data that's reported is produced by someone else as a matter of fiction as well. Now, we want scientific standards to be better so we can have more trust and whatever and blah, blah, blah. But as a scientist, if I read a study, I'm always super suspicious about data collection, even if the study looks airtight. And I never think that it like I never say, oh, this proves X. I think "Mm, it suggests it if you believe that they were doing these things right. What we're doing here is saying, well, I've collected all this data by existing. How can I make the patterns that I see in it explicit by seeing how I respond to stimuli? But that doesn't go past my ability to understand the world and the things that I've seen. And I think that is a fundamental limit of this kind of analysis. Yeah. One, uh, worth noting that this scene actually didn't really happen, Um, or at least it is, you know, reported to happen. Simon got this from a detective um, who claims that this was an interaction he had. Um, so this showed up first in his book, Homicide, um, and then was later put into the wire, which I think is pretty much par for the course for a lot of his writing. I think um, about half or more of the anecdotes that pop up in the wire um, are stolen from real life. The resonant stuff, it's interesting. So David Simon actually kind of talks about this. And I think... Um, when it comes to resonance, I mean, I think this is one of the interesting ideas in The Tower, the Hotel Concierge essay, is this idea that it's not that we have too many stereotypes. The problem is that we don't have enough. And that representation is really ultimately about kind of complicating kind of a gross portraits of very large groups that just aren't very predictive and actually breaking them down into more predictive ones. And so, you know, for a white guy, there's a million ways to be depressed. You know, there are subtle differences between uh, Bright Eyes depressed and Elliot Smith depressed. And a fair <laughs> amount of people will know what you're talking about. Um, sure, I know. 
<laughs> and so and so Simon says, you know, quote, you know, I'm I'm the kind of writer who when writing cares above all about whether the people I'm writing about will recognize themselves. I'm not thinking about the general reader. My greatest fear is that the people in the world I'm writing about will read it and say, nah, there's nothing there. And I like this because I think it kind of touches both on this idea of like the particularity of different people and subcultures and types. So this idea that if it was written to totally be plausible or resonant uh, to the lay audience, um, then it actually wouldn't capture meaningfully the kind of human behavior in the the scene that he's profiling. But also this this kind of idea of resonance, right? And I'm you kind of in your description gesture at this because you use the metaphor of data collection, but... I mean, it feels like to some extent, I mean, I think we would both agree. And I think most sociologists, uh, you know, who study rituals and human interaction would agree that people don't have explicit rule sets. It's, you know, David Simon wouldn't sit down and say, okay, well, I have this line about it's not boogie or I have this line about the craps and well, I have these axioms of human behavior that I believe to be true. And if I check them against my axioms, then, well, like maybe I should change the wording here. That's not how it works, right? So it it's this very kind of affective feeling-based stylistic thing that reminds me a lot of, you know, GAN transfer and autoencoder neural network stuff. And I'm curious your thoughts on all that. There's this kind of idea that I don't quite have the technical vocabulary for, but I was always frustrated. It's been a couple of years since I read it, but I read um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, the Robert Persig book. And he draws this distinction between kind of like a romantic and a classical outlook. And one is like very mathy and one is very kind of feelings based. And I think one distinction, I mean, and this isn't a distinction that he makes up, obviously. It's like a kind of deep archetypal uh, duality uh, in in people's frames. But I think one problem with it, right, is my understanding of how math works is that the more complicated math works, the less it looks like math. And that when you get to like real serious complexity, you have, you, it essentially starts looking like a feeling or a mood, which is, I think, part of the Pelle Gretzer idea about like ambient uh, ambiance and mood and vibe and how we should understand these things through, through machine learning. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I very much agree. And I guess this is going to be controversial, but it's very clear to me that math as a formal mathematics where you're proving theorems and that's your paper, it can only approach the systems that we have the ability to mechanically explain, right? Like by definition, because a theorem mm -hmm. has to be right every time. That's what makes it a theorem. And all our theorem proving techniques are just ways of basically quantifying every possible situation this theorem could be applied and saying, no, it would definitely work there, even though I'm not going to show you a table of every possible situation. You know, that means all you can do is basically give this kind of convex hull of the kinds of situations, the outer bounds of what's possible, because that's where you hit mechanical limits. But when you look at real complexity, where there are, you know, just immeasurable number of variables for instance like in this room that i'm in and the positions of everything all of the books and you know the audio equipment and whatever in comparison to everything else and how i feel about the space and why things are the, where they are and what got them there it's too complex you can't prove a theorem about this room so instead you need to be data driven 
And in order to be data-driven, you basically take something. I mean, this is how we do it now. I don't know if it's the only way. But mm-hmm. in machine learning, you usually take something that's overexpressive for the problem. It has way more parameters than you think you need to explain the underlying theory, even though I'm not sure I believe that, but that's what people say. Um, and then you show it data and you basically try to get it to mimic data in order to get at the data generating process, i.e. my behavior that ends up organizing the room the way the way it is now. So I think I very much agree with that. And I think you know the reason why we kind of need this vibe aspect of things is because we just can't approach all problems as mechanistic because most of the time pragmatically we're not privy to enough information to give a mechanical explanation that would make any sense right right do i mean so one possible implication of this there's this idea that that what machines or machine learning or gpt3 or you know the kind of language that they generate uh, is babbling. So it has the kind of statistical associative um, stuff, the kind of data-driven, like these kind of go together. And it sounds like it kind of could be language plausibly. It sounds, you know, more or less like English. Uh, here I'm kind of reminded of those those crazy, um, they'll make the audio clips where people aren't speaking English, but it sounds so much like English, even though, is there is there, do you think, some danger of, if we maybe use similar kind of, if our brains have less of kind of a mechanistic, deterministic cause effect model um, of these things and more of kind of a statistical associative uh, model, you know, from experience, do you think there's some danger that some fiction could feel plausible and resonant while only kind of providing some simulacra or the babbling equivalent of verisimilitude and interaction? Absolutely. But what I think is interesting is if it does and it's popular, then that pattern becomes a real thing. So (laughs) I think my go-to example here is that in a lot of media you and I have been exposed to, there is what I would call moments of truth where someone shouts the truth, even though the situation doesn't allow it. And that gets a lot done suddenly. Frankly, I haven't seen many Mm -hmm. situations like that. But I've seen a lot more fetishism in our generation of people trying to make things like that Hmm. and that becoming a real move, whether it works the same way or not, because people are so familiar with the pattern and they have real emotional handles on it. So I think it's very common. Um, And I think, you know, if you look at kids TV shows, often they're trying to push certain behaviors that feel totally unnatural to adults and adults are like, what is this shit? But kids get Mm -hmm. into it and they see the pattern and they get it and it does construct a lot of their world but i think Mm -hmm. what's interesting is that that becomes real because people are that flexible and that can you know that's a real part of your social environment and therefore it becomes a real handle i don't know whether this is a worthwhile avenue to go down but i feel like growing up i felt like all this stuff about you know uh tv rotting brains and the pernicious influence of mass media um on people's frames, um, you know, we're a little overhyped. Um, and now I'm like, wow, it is crazy what that we don't think more about what we show to young children, <laughs> that we are so casual about it. I don't know quite how to bridge that gap. So one one frame is just that I was doing like a kind of torque epistemology, like, you know, 
where there was this kind of overstepping of the dominant interpretation, which is like, not only is TV affecting youth, but it's totally destroying their brains. It's like turning them, you know, you watch something violent and now they're suddenly a mass murderer or a serial killer. Um, you know, those kinds of just totally sensationalist, sensationalist oversteppings of what might be a more reasonable or moderate thesis, you know, create the inevitable backlash. So that's maybe one reasonable frame. But I'm curious. Um, hmm. I don't quite have the language. It, it feels like there's another way to resolve that, which is that in the abstract, the influence seems strong, but in the kind of real concrete lived experience of human beings, which I guess I was until like 20 something when I started getting into COGSI and and adjacent fields, that my lived experience said one thing, even though the theory said another thing. And so I guess maybe I'm wondering, is there a world in which the lived experience knows something the theory doesn't? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the major way in which this happens in general is I think theory, because it needs concrete handles in order to describe things cleanly the way it wants to, usually purports more direct mimicry than humans actually participate in. So there's this assumption that if you play violent video games, you're going to go shoot people. And I definitely don't think that's true. But I would bet that, you know, the proliferation of violent video games means the proliferation of violent videos is much more easy to handle, right? And people are just more comfortable with that and less people will complain. And I bet it has Mm. exactly that kind of effect. But in theory, and I see this everywhere, I see this in, you know, NLP, I see this in, in so many places where if you see an effect, people expect you to theorize it as if, that effect has to do with the exact concrete objects, you know, A and B that you're observing right now, that mm-hmm. violent video games lead to violent behavior. But usually it's two or three steps removed. And I think that the, you know, place of what you call lived experience here is basically in sanity checking what kind of how much we should trust theory. Because I'm I'm a big skeptic of of almost every theory that I hear, and I think there's good reason to be. Theories are created by people who have an agenda for pushing their theories, right? And I think the point is, you should always be wondering, like, if this was true, what would I be seeing? And I definitely don't think we see the level of violence, for instance, that we would assume if all of these sensationalist theories of video game violence affecting children were true. But... What I do think is difficult is the torque epistemology pushes it so far back that the handle that the theory tried to grasp onto becomes taboo, right? And that, mm. you know, you and I talking about it now, it's almost taboo to say, oh, maybe video games did increase violence. And I don't think we really think that, but we're kind of exploring the space, but now the space is But it's fraught. a reasonable hypothesis, yeah. Like, it's not crazy given what we know about, like, modeling and emulation and the way that people, like, essentially train on examples and then play out that behavior. Like, it's a very reasonable hypothesis that has become uh, untouchable in certain ways, like Sopper Wharf or something like that. Oh, so I maybe one other thought that I'm having. I mean, I wonder the extent to which we actually, as emulators, I mean, I do wonder if we're actually treating everybody in these uh, in portrayals, media portrayals as models. 
Or I wonder if there's actually an incredibly narrow amount of people that we actually look to in order for the relevance to our real lives. And I do wonder if people are maybe better at propping up a kind of fantasy firewall of saying, "Uh, this isn't real. And like, I know, you know, or these people aren't even me. I mean, it would almost be surprising if um, a ton of white liberals started uh, updating their behavior according to, uh, you know, elements of kind of street culture because they watched The Wire, in part because it's not clear why the drug dealer would be a model for, um, you know, an affluent uh, liberal middle-class watcher to to take on. And I'm curious if you've seen, I mean, this kind of one show that I just do not get, and I keep trying to get into it, but I don't understand Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I really don't. <laughs> and it's because of the dialogue. I don't understand what the dialogue's doing um, because it doesn't at all seem to be interested in portraying anything close to realistic dialogue. And I'm curious if you've watched it and have a steel man of what Josh Whedon's up to, because obviously a lot of smart people think that show's really smart. You know, I don't, but I should watch it because I've thought about watching it like probably eight or nine times for real. And I always see a clip of it and I'm super turned off. But now you have me interested that even if I hate it, I I should have something to say about it. But I'll give you, you know, a a substitute for now, which is uh, it's not even mine. I'll give you my girlfriend's hypothesis about anime, which I feel like is at the right abstraction level for a theory of media or, you know, it's not a total theory of media, but one theory of, um, of this part of media. She thinks that because of the way anime is and has been for around the last 20 years, people's idea of justice is more naive, basically because mm-hmm. even if things are complicated, they're complicated by figuring out who's good or bad. And that's kind of fucked up when you think about how people actually interact. And I totally see that as descriptive of kind of the way people try to describe things now. Now, it's always been common to kind of demonize enemies and and try to make things, you know, work out into this nice back and forth. But for instance, I think people's understanding of politics, if you look at descriptions from the 2000s, was much more like, hmm, everybody wants something and we're going to make this kind of like, you know, it's all about who can make it work kind of thing, blah, blah, blah. Whereas now I really think there's a much more good versus evil thread. And I, you know, you could, there are lots of reasons for that, but I think you can at least see what she's gesturing at, even if the, the theory itself isn't true in that anime definitely does come down to this like you have to figure out who's for the good guys and maybe there are many bad guys but it's usually really one set of good guys and maybe it's complicated to do that but it comes down to this issue and that that's really a kind of a real world view which i think is more popular and we don't know if they're connected but i see the correlation to me personally yeah I mean, on one hand, we know that people asymmetrically or or preferentially emulate people who are higher status than them, but it's not just about being upper status. It's being about upper status in the same game. You copy people who are more successful than you in the same game that you are playing. I guess I wonder whether that kind of simplistic narrative is going to end up more bolstered by, let's say a certain retrospective view of history in which there, I mean, because the way history is told is inevitably there are protagonists and there are antagonists, you know, there's, is it George Wallace? Is he the, you know, the Southern governor who, you know, is 
I think runs at some point, um, but is, you know, I mean, just the villain of the 60s civil right movement. And then obviously you have the protagonists, um, you have the kind of righteous camp, and then you have the kind of hateful bigots at Little Rock who are, you know, screaming at the kids and throwing, um, you know, or rotten eggs at them. And I mean, obviously, in that case, I think it, it maybe is fair to say that that there are real heroes and villains. I guess it seems to me like there might be a much stronger model pull of things that 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 people aren't naive about representations to some extent, and that representations which are much closer to the circumstances they're trying to emulate have a much stronger pull. And so there's this kind of distance by which an anime would affect you less in your kind of conception of these things. Whereas your understanding of, let's say, a historical narrative, if you're, let's say, an activist who's working on these issues, is going to have a very, very strong pull in how you see the world. I agree. But I think one really um, big thing that I feel about American culture today is a lot of people at least play at in their heads the feeling of the hero's journey. And that makes depiction of heroes Mm. actually much closer to your game because a lot of people think that in the right circumstances, they could buck up and become important to the entire world. And I I just really do feel like a lot of people believe that. All right. Thanks for listening. I'm Crispy Chicken. And remember, if there's money on the ground, don't fucking take it. Nice.